I'm really glad that you are all here today, that God brought you here to hear from his word. Before I jump into the scripture reading, I wanted to point out a few things that I we hope will be helpful kind of as we go through the series. Our primary text is going to be the word of God. We'll go through Matthew 5 through 7 largely in a verse-by-verse format. Um, the pace may vary throughout it, but we are going to be using definitely a lot of scripture both within those three chapters of Matthew and then outside the greater kind of context of scripture. But there's also other books, and a few people have asked too. They've said, you know, we're going into this series. I like to have something to read alongside, something to help me in my personal study, maybe to prepare me for community group or prepare me for hearing the word. And there's two commentaries in particular. Um, there's hundreds, probably thousands out there. But these two in particular, a few of us on the preaching team have have read parts of it and are finding them very helpful. I know you can't read them from there. So one is by John Stott. That's basically the message of the Sermon on the Mount. This one's been around for a number of years. is very, very good. The other is by Daniel Doriani. It's the Sermon on the Mount, the character of a disciple. Both of them are, I think, very um, pastoral, but they're written more on the lay level. They don't get into incredible technical detail to the Greek. So I think both of those would be some that you you may be interested in getting a copy of. I, I don't think we have any plans in selling them here, but if you need to know where they are, we could probably post a link or something, a place to buy them. But... We're going to primarily be looking at the Word of God, and we're thankful for men who have studied the Word and have written books that are our helps to us as well. So let's turn together to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. This is the first verse in our series on Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And... The Sermon on the Mount, that title is kind of ubiquitous with these chapters. In fact, there's almost nothing else you could call them. It's Christ teaching his disciples kind of a first set of kingdom principles on this mountainside. Um, In order to see how these verses fit in the overall message of Matthew, I actually want to start reading a little bit earlier than verse 1 of chapter 5. So let's Actually, turn back. It's probably on the same page or the the page across. Uh, Matthew 4, starting in verse 12, is where we'll begin our reading. This is the word of God. Now, when he, Christ, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Would you pray with me that God would open up our eyes by his spirit to his word to change us? 
Father, we need you now. I need you now for wisdom, for, for clarity, for understanding. I need you to open up our eyes to your word. And I pray that we would see where this passage fits within the much greater context, Lord, of Matthew's gospel, of scripture, of your redemptive purposes and plans. I pray, Lord, that you would make me effective where I feel very ineffective to lay the groundwork for this series on the message, the sermon that your son preached. No greater preacher has ever lived. So we recognize the challenge of this. We recognize that explaining such a great sermon, explaining and applying such piercing words will be difficult for us. But I pray that you would give us boldness, that you would give us as preachers the authority of Scripture. That as Christ finished his message and the crowds were amazed at the authority with which he delivered it, I pray that you would reach through into our hearts and transform us with that same authority. The authority that healed the sick, that forgives sins, that you would continue your work in our lives today. Father, I pray for this time now that I would be clear, and more importantly, that you would be glorified. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to start with two quotes. Neither of them are incredibly long, but try, try to follow along as I read them. This one's by John Stott. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus. Though arguably, it is the least understood. And certainly, it is the least obeyed. Let me say that again. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus. Though arguably, he says, it is the least understood. And certainly, it is the least obeyed. It's the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, for it is, his, it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to say, to be, and to do. R. Kent Hughes, another pastor, said, The Sermon on the Mount is the compacted, congealed theology of Christ, and as such is perhaps the most profound section of the entire New Testament and the whole Bible. Every phrase can bear exhaustive exposition and yet never be completely plumbed. That's encouraging. No other section of scripture, he says, makes us face ourselves like this Sermon on the Mount. And it's been said many times, I think I would even repeat this, this is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever. The one who we preach, the one who we proclaim delivered this message of which we have excerpts here in Matthew 5 through 7. He preached it sometime early in his first, or early in his, his approximately three years of ministry. And we still feel the waves today. We still feel the, the tremors today from that first proclamation of this powerful, powerful message. So pretty much all the commentaries I looked at said something along these lines. They all commented on the amount of literature. They commented on how there's thousands of books, that this probably more ink has been spilled on these three chapters than any other part of Scripture. They used words like the amount of literature is immense, enormous, not lacking. I kind of chuckled to myself when I read that because the person that wrote that decided to add another volume to that stack of books. So there. There's something to wanting to understand and wanting to apply these chapters. And I pray that God, by his spirit, would, would bring us up to that challenge of understanding and applying what God is teaching here. 
I could easily fill an entire introductory message just with quoting what other people have said about these three chapters. But I really don't think that would be helpful. I don't think that would be edifying to us as a body. So what I feel led to do instead is to try and give us the the fullest, the most complete view of the sermon itself. So kind of as, as a holistic piece, what is the sermon teaching? But in order to understand that, I think we need to get the biblical context. We need to zoom back. We need to see what is Matthew saying in his gospel. So putting on our wide-angle lens and seeing a little bit more of the story that Matthew is telling here. And then I feel like we need to go back even further because we need to see where does Matthew fit in the greater context, the greater canon of Scripture, all the books, the 66 books of the Bible. But I still feel like we wouldn't even quite capture it all, so let's get in our rocket ship and let's go back as far as we can to be able to see through the lens of all redemptive history. So from before creation, when God is making plans for what he will create and how he will redeem, and then beyond history, when, when time is no more, that's the scope I'm going to try to fit into this two-hour message. No, just kidding. Those jokes are always funny to me. So let's do that. And, and honestly, I'm not going to be able to exhaust that. This is part of my introduction, so I don't plan on exhausting that. But I want us to see this cosmic view of the story of redemption and see where Matthew See where Christ's sermon fits in that cosmic view. So starting before creation, we see in Ephesians chapter 1, God tells us there that he in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, predestined a people, predestined us to redemption, to being purchased from sin, and to being adopted as his own sons and daughters. And in that time before time, he made a plan to accomplish that. The grace we would receive as God's people was planned in eternity past, and the Godhead would do this work for his own glory. We see that there in Ephesians 1, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then as he begins creation in his creative acts, and we saw this in our Genesis study just about exactly a year ago, God would demonstrate his sovereign rule, that he could just speak something and it would appear into reality. And God in that created realm would rule his sovereign kingdom. He would do it through relationship with the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, that he created to have fellowship with. And we're told in Genesis that this was very good. This creation, this relationship, this kingdom was very good. It was a domain still unmarred by sin or sickness or rebellion or death or sadness or pain. So this is the example. This is the standard of a perfect kingdom. And I like how one author defines kingdom. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and receiving God's blessing. But if you've read... The Bible, if you've lived in this world, you know that's not where we are now. Because humanity fell. Adam and Eve were expressing in their sin their desire to be their own king. They didn't want a king ruling over them. They wanted to make their own decisions, rule their own lives. And we've been repeating that and suffering the consequences of our sin ever since. And God, as part of his curse on the serpent, as part of the consequence of the fall, God pointed our first parents and all their descendants forward to one who would crush the snake, who would crush the serpent, crush the devil. By the woman's seed, he would do that. I don't know if any of you have a copy or if you've seen the big picture story Bible, but At the beginning, I think it's the second chapter in there. It's talking about the fall. It's talking about a very sad day. And it has a picture in there of a man that looks like how we often depict Jesus standing on a snake. 
And I've read that to Ellie a few times. And it's turned into her favorite part. I want to read the one about the snake getting crushed. And to me, that's really cool. I, I know she doesn't understand yet why the snake is getting crushed. But it is a cool concept. And Christ was being pointed to all the way back at the time of the fall. That he would be the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head, destroying the power of Satan. And then, as we saw last year in Genesis, through the covenants, the ones to Noah, to Abraham, there was land, nation, and blessing that were promised. These were all part of God's promised kingdom. And then God made a covenant to David. We haven't covered that recently, but in this covenant, just to summarize, God promises a future ruler from David, a branch from the, from the stump of Jesse, who would have an eternal kingdom, There's a lot we could say about this concept of a king and a kingdom. But throughout the books we call the prophets, God keeps expanding his description of this future king. In Isaiah, we see that he would be a ruler that ushers in a kingdom, but also he would be a suffering servant. Other prophets draw attention to his rule in people's hearts that through his work, through the work of this king, there would be a new covenant relationship where hearts would be turned from stony to flesh. And then after the prophets, as you're going through redemptive history, there's silence. Nothing heard from God for 400 years. Even though a temple has been rebuilt where Solomon's temple used to stand, even though God's people, many of them, are back in Jerusalem, There is no word from God, no more prophetic vision. And this goes on, as I said, for four centuries. We, most of us, know what it means. I think all of us know what it means to wait, to wait for something to happen, to become impatient, to begin losing faith, to wonder what's happening but 400 years, wow, that must have seemed like, seemed like an eternity. This time between the Testaments, with no kingdom in sight, but through the written promises of God. And then, as biblical readers, I think most of us may know what comes next. We know how that silence was shattered, but let's pretend for a minute that we don't know. Let's pretend we're just hearing for the first time and see what God brings in to break that silence. In our Bibles, it's described in a series of four books that explain, describe, illustrate in their own ways how God breaks the silence through the entrance of someone, a Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, the King. And as the God-man Jesus bursts into human history, The promised and the prophesied kingdom is born. And we already read, as we looked at Matthew chapter 4, we already read that he told us it was there. He was bringing in this kingdom. Jesus was having an inauguration ceremony of sorts, saying, I'm here. My kingdom has arrived. And following the Gospels through to their bitter but joyful end, This king, in a great reversal, dies for his people. To defeat their sin by bearing its just penalty. Then on the awesome third day, he breaks out of the tomb, showing his power over death. Followed not long after by his ascension to reign at God's right hand. You see how king and kingdom just keeps coming up throughout scripture. So what about us here now? We have the kingdom But we also ask for it to come. We serve the king, but we still fight our joint enemy. We, brothers and sisters, are here in the in-between. The kingdom is both already and not yet. It has come, but we're awaiting it to come in its fullness. And rather than the kingdom being a specific place we can point to, it's more of an active reality wherever Christ the king is being obeyed and worshipped. 
Yes, we are in the kingdom, but all has not yet been made right. We see that around us. We see that some of the promises made in the Old Testament maybe aren't in fruition exactly as we thought they'd be. The lion and the lamb aren't yet playing together. If you put them in the same pen, I think the outcome is going to be pretty obvious. Most of us aren't letting our kids play with cobras. So there is, at Christ's return, a future, greater experience of his reign that we have to look forward to, where there will be final peace, full prosperity, and eternal joy. The king has already made the reservations. He sent out the invitations. The musicians have been booked, and we're just waiting for the marriage feast of the Lamb. We're waiting for it to start, and we're seeking to get the church, his bride, ready. So with that as an overview, with that as a backdrop, here we are in Matthew, the first of four Gospels. It may be review, but let's talk about what are these four books? What does it mean to be a Gospel? Well, they're clearly a unique type of literature in Scripture. They're a unique genre. They're different from the letters. They're different from the Old Testament prophecies or historical accounts or poetry. Perhaps the closest thing we could say they are is an inspired form of a biography. They're telling a story primarily through narrative. So why do we get four of them? Isn't perhaps their risk of being some contradiction between four different people telling the same story, you might ask? Well, let me alleviate, let me try to allay those fears. Because since they are all breathed out by one author, they are all breathed out by God himself, we know they're accurate. We know they're inerrant in their message in the original manuscripts, but they each bring something perhaps different that they want us to know about Christ. This isn't original with me. I heard it from Stephen, so I'll give him credit. I don't know if it's original with him. But I thought this was a good comparison or analogy. And we can take it, I think, within the bounds as far as analogy goes. But the Gospels weren't written to be like a photograph. In a photograph, you're capturing things very concretely, very absolutely. But I think people tend to think of the Gospels kind of like a photograph where there's concrete people, places, and words. And perhaps we even think that what's recorded on the pages of the gospel is everything that happened, everything that was said, and it's in this exact order that it happened. But thinking through it, this would be impossible based on the length of these gospels. It'd be impossible to record everything that one of us did in a day, much less everything we did or said in a 33-year lifespan, of which the last three years get, get a lot of coverage. So no, we, we know that this isn't recording every word of Christ, every act of Christ. So while they do cover Christ's life, there's much that happened that isn't recorded. There's much that one gospel author may say that another may leave out. Why is that? Because it might be better to view these instead of as a photograph more like a portrait. When painting a portrait, an artist is going to try to pick out some facet and draw that out. So each gospel, we could say, contains a single author's completely true, completely inerrant portrayal of who Jesus is. And in making that portrait, they're going to bring to light certain events that happened specific teachings of Christ so that his portrait can be communicated to his audience. I'm not in any way saying that these are one-sided accounts or that these are biased accounts, but these are a multifaceted display of a very three-dimensional person and the good news that he came to bring. That's why they're called Gospels. Of course, we would need an infinite number of Gospels and if you have a Bible like I do, there's only four. So for some reason, even though John 
the very last verse of John, the last verse of John's gospel, he even brings up this point. He says there were many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. So we, we know these four gospels don't contain everything possible that could be said about Christ, but they contain everything the Spirit wanted and knew that we needed to know about Christ. So we can be fully confident that these four gospels bring us a true portrayal of our Savior, the one who comes to bring us good news. They shine the light on Christ from different angles, different perspectives. Their portraits aren't all going to look exactly the same. But the infinite and matchless glory of Christ is clearly displayed in each. Take a moment and worship him for the great gift here in the center of his written word of the gospel accounts. I think these are so important, not not to in any way negate or minimize other parts of Scripture, but it's so important for us as followers of Christ to see what often our eyewitness accounts of what Christ did and what Christ said here in inspired Scripture. So if we're saying that each of the Gospels brings out different facets of Christ, perhaps for different audiences, what about Matthew? Well, it's hard to say that any one thing is the focus of this gospel. It's hard to narrow it down and say, well, this Christ is being portrayed as and just fit it in one simple thing. Because he wrote his gospel with, I believe, multiple goals and themes. But here's a few highlights I want to point out that that I think are, are universally accepted. Many find Matthew's message to be geared more toward perhaps a Jewish audience. Many talk about it as being the most Jewish of the four Gospels. Which doesn't mean it's less applicable to us as Gentiles, but it means that it often will refer to things that a Jewish audience would know. It came up once in my reading, but multiple times if you look through the book, he points out fulfilled prophecy. So he's talking to people that would know what those prophecies were and bring in their fulfillment in the person of Christ. The proclamation of Christ's kingship is another key aspect of this gospel, even in contrast a little bit to some of the other gospels. It goes right down to the genealogies. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's pointing to Christ as the Davidic heir. That's a kingly line. Also, you see the Magi. As they come in, the wise men. And they're talking about a prophecy that they had read when they saw the star. And they say that from Bethlehem will come a ruler. Then we see a little bit later, several verses later, the earthly king Herod is trying to destroy this competing king. So over and over again, Matthew is bringing out this one who is coming with his kingdom to reign and to rule on a throne. It appears also that the book of Matthew is built around five, possibly six, major sections of teaching. Major discourses of Christ. So you'll see one, and then there will be some narrative that will follow it, and then there will be a couple chapters that are just bringing the words of Christ to us. And this here in Matthew 5 through 7 is the first of those five discourses of Christ that Matthew talks about. All of them in some way cover the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And this kingdom that is talked about in Matthew is going to contrast sharply with their culture, with their religious leaders and what they had been teaching. And really, I think it conflicts with our culture, the way we often live, even in a somewhat Christian culture. So in this first major discourse, Jesus provides an interpretation of Scripture, of the law from Old Testament, and how God is to be obeyed out of a new covenant heart. So given that kind of high-level view of Matthew, of redemptive history, I have three simple points I want us to see today. If you have a bulletin, they're there on the, the back, the outline is. 
Three simple points to see as we fix our attention here at the beginning of this series on the king and the kingdom that Matthew is introducing. The first point, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. Matthew chapters 1 through 3, after this genealogy which highlights David's line, after Christ's birth is announced, Matthew introduces us to this itinerant preacher, this one who's walking through the wilderness, John the baptizer, the one that's going to prepare and point us to Jesus, the Messiah. And he starts to lay the groundwork for Christ's ministry by teaching this message of repentance. Matthew chapter 3 is going to end with the baptism of Jesus by John. And remember what happens at that kind of cosmic event. Christ goes, goes down into the river and is baptized. And we hear the Father's affirmation of his Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What more clear statement can you have of the deity, of the divinity of Christ than the one Matthew records, where the Father himself speaks it from heaven. This is the promised Messiah. This is the one who will rule on his eternal throne. The world can take notice. The king has come. And then Christ, as he starts his ministry, makes this announcement in chapter 4. It starts in the first half with Christ experiencing the temptations in the wilderness. Christ proving that even in his humanity, he is going before his people. He is enduring Satan's temptation. He is conquering where we will fail. This is not a dispassionate king separated from his people, but he knows our weaknesses intimately. May that truth give you comfort today that he knows your weakness, your frailty. And in chapter 4, verse 17, we have his message. Repent. Repent. This is a call to the people from that day to ours to turn from sinful pursuits and to enter the kingdom that is here. When Christ's kingdom comes, you see lives don't stay the same but they are remade to be kingdom citizens. And this kingdom comes with the presence of Christ. John the baptizer already gave us that message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near or is nigh or is knocking at the door. It's as if he's saying, wait for it. Watch for it. Don't miss it. He knows that Jesus, the Christ, is the promised king. And with the king comes the kingdom. And Jesus repeats those words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He wants everyone to know that this long-awaited, long-promised king has finally arrived. Jesus came to usher in his kingdom. Even though many would be confused, many still are confused about what kind of a kingdom he was bringing in. We know in that day that many expected that this king bringing in his kingdom was going to mean freedom from Rome. It was going to be breaking their religious and their political oppression, that they would again be a free people. Well, it wasn't that kind of a kingdom. It was a kingdom that would look for citizens that would hear his word and obey. It was looking for a kingdom where hearts would be transformed to where Even motives would be pure before the eyes of the king. So when Jesus announced and preached the gospel of his kingdom, he also brought in the kingdom with his own divine power and authority. So when we see later in Matthew, we're not going to turn there right now, but Christ was questioned multiple times. Who gives you the authority to forgive sin? Who gives you the authority to do that to the temple? Christ claims the authority based on who he is, God himself. I'm the king. I can make those kind of calls. So this kingdom, he ushers in 
with his presence. And he announces it. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But this kingdom is often referred to using the phrase already, but not yet. This is an already kingdom. Christ ushered it in. But there's aspects of it that we're still waiting for. And you may have heard that phrase before, maybe you haven't. I think we're probably going to use it more in this series because there's aspects of Matthew 5 through 7 that talk about the kingdom as being now. They talk about it as being present. You are in the kingdom. And there's, pre- there's aspects of Matthew 5 through 7 that will be future tense, that you will receive the kingdom or the kingdom is coming in some future sort of way. So only through Christ and his incarnation was this kingdom burst into the world. We already mentioned that. Where the king is obeyed from the heart. So we'll hit this reality as we go through Christ's sermon. We'll go through this reality of the commands being for us now. This isn't something we should push off and say, that command, that's really hard. I'm going to say that that's for future because I kind of want to keep life pretty easy. Now, we're not going to do that, but where it's specific to point forward, we're going to try to be clear about saying that's that's perhaps a future reality for us in the kingdom. Paul's letter to the Romans is very helpful. It reminds us that mankind and creation itself groan inwardly. There's this inward urging, this inward desire A groan usually isn't a positive sound that we make. It shows that we have a very strong feeling about something, usually accompanied with pain. We groan when we're in pain, be it physical, emotional. So Romans, or Paul in in the epistle to the the Romans, reminds us that this groaning is taking place because we're waiting for the kingdom to be revealed. We're waiting for our adoption to be fully realized. For the remaining stains of sin we experience, the daily sin that we fight, to be removed. And that's what we wait for. But we embrace the kingdom that's here while fighting daily the sin that's around us. We embrace the king who brought in his kingdom all while longing for a kingdom that is to come. When we will see finally our king's glorious face. What an awesome thought. What what an amazing thought, grace and truth, that we are in this age. Yes, it's it's a struggle to live in the already and the not yet, because there's not yet. But we do have already, and let's not neglect the already. Let's not neglect the kingdom that we have in kind of demanding the kingdom that's to come. So the kingdom First point is here. Second point, the kingdom is good news. I believe this is why it's an awesome thought for us as a church. The kingdom is good news. Christ preaches repentance. I'm going to talk about two ways that the kingdom is good news. The first is more of an implicit. It's implied. The second is explicit. It comes right out and says it. So the implied one. The fact that Christ preaches repentance is good news. And before you back up and say that, I, I'm not quite connecting there. What it means when Christ preaches repentance, it means that since the king is preaching it, there is still grace for sinners. Because without the doctrine of repentance, if Christ hadn't said anything about repentance, it would mean that we're either hopeless in our sins, that there's no hope for them. I'm not going to tell them to repent or that we're in some state of sinless perfection, which we also know is not true. So since neither of those are true, since Christ calls his followers to repent and to keep repenting, we know there's hope for us. We know there is grace that through the good news that Christ is going to preach and the the life he's going to live and the death he's going to die, there is grace for sinful people. So the first words that Matthew records from the sermon are blessed, are the poor in spirit, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize they're depraved, those who recognize their spiritual destitution are the ones Christ is talking about. And he says, you're blessed. 
Those are his true followers, his true disciples, not the ones who think they've arrived, who don't need any good news. The ones that are needy and destitute, and this is the message of grace. We don't need to clean ourselves up in our own strength. We cannot. We need to repent and experience his grace and his strength. Now let's get to the explicit declaration that this is good news, because Christ starts going around Galilee with his disciples that he's just called. And in verse 23 of chapter 4 of Matthew, we get this three-pronged description of what Christ's early ministry consisted of. Later in the book, we're going to get more specific accounts. But here, it seems that Matthew is kind of right. He's painting with a broad brush and he's giving three aspects of his ministry at this point. He says that he taught in the synagogues. He preached the gospel of the kingdom and he healed every disease or affliction among the people. So Jesus preached the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. So the Kingdom is good news because that's what Christ was preaching. Jesus had been proclaiming, this is a quote from Doriani, Jesus had been proclaiming the coming of his kingdom. And now as he comes into chapter 5, he needs to describe what life in it is like. Jesus has started to gather disciples and must explain what it means to follow him. And some have and some will try to describe Matthew 5 through 7 as primarily law, as primarily demands for God's people. And while it certainly consists of law, it certainly consists of many commands, many imperatives, I would say that the message of the king and of the kingdom is primarily gospel. It's good news because we see that we can't do it. It points us to our need for Christ and our need for grace. We're going to be prompted every week in this series, I pray, to turn to Christ for grace when we see our own inability to obey these commands. I hope this series does that for me. I hope that weekly I am on my face before God, convicted of my sin, saying, I know this command, God. And I struggle to obey it. I need to cling to the cross again to find your forgiving grace. May we all have that posture as we go through this, because our tendency, my tendency, is often to say, that was a good message and go on my way, or that was a good message for that person and go on my way. Instead, let's all internalize the words of this sovereign king, to his people. And where we struggle to obey, let's admit that to ourselves, to God, to each other, and say, this is a struggle for me. I'm not doing this. Would you pray with me and for me that God's grace would help me in this area? And Matthew records also that the crowds start building up. I I think you'd expect that if someone showed up in Hillsborough and had a magic hand that would you know, heal you with just a touch, I think they'd probably draw a crowd, especially if, as it appears, Christ was not charging for this healing. People would come to him. He would heal them. So he gathers a crowd. But this healing ministry wasn't his primary purpose for coming. To to heal physical ailments and sicknesses, to get rid of man's diseases, And his physical body was not his primary purpose. Yes, those problems are very real ones, but they're temporary. And our heart sickness is eternal. So to heal our heart sickness, the only remedy was his blood. That was his true purpose. So maybe you ask, why does he heal the sick at all? Why didn't he just live his life, die on a cross? Then he could save people from their sins and... You know, this temporary thing doesn't... Why did he worry about that? Well, I think it has to do partly with his compassion. He knew what it was like to be human, what it was like to experience pain and hunger and thirst. And you see, throughout the Gospels, he's doing things to help people in those states. 
But also I think it's because healing brings the body back to wholeness. It brings lameness to being full limbs again that can walk. brings lack of sight to being able to see again. So it restores the physical realm to wholeness, back to the way God created it to be, and no longer marred as it was by this evidence of the fall. And this reminds me that God's entire order has been broken by sin. And only Christ can restore it back again. We see that in the healing even, that that only Christ can restore order back to what has been broken by our sin. And it points us to God's grace for people around us that are hurting. Let's not get the mindset that I'm only going to talk to that person if they give me two hours that I can share the gospel with them. That should be our ultimate goal, yes, but let's love people where they are, hurting as they are, provide help for their felt needs where they are. And as we do that, pray that God gives us opportunities to proclaim his good news verbally to them. May this be part of our ministry as we seek to show mercy to others individually as a church body as we follow Christ. May we see where we can eliminate or ease someone's suffering these made in the image of God because that too reflects God's heart and brings him much glory. The Sermon of Jesus is going to touch on these kinds of social works in the context of an already but not yet kingdom. My third point is that the kingdom is for disciples. So the kingdom is here, the kingdom is good news, and the kingdom is for disciples. Matthew told us or gave us an example of four of the disciples as they were called. From their occupation, from fishing and mending nets, he tells us how Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Christ walks by and says, follow me. They drop what they're doing, leave their families behind, and follow the Savior. I think even that example shows us what a disciple is. A disciple is a follower, but not just saying, I follow that person. I follow the Cubs. I watch a game maybe twice a year, you know, check stats a little bit. That's not the kind of follower Christ is talking about. Christ is talking about someone, as in these cases, that leaves their former way of life. Their way of making money, they left it. Their jobs, their close family. There's places in the world where the persecuted church still experiences this when they follow Christ. When Christ comes in and changes the heart, changes the life, and they, they follow him completely, people lose everything in some parts of the world. People's families turn their back on them because they went against their religion. Friends might desert them. How much do we know about true discipleship here in, in modern America? How much should we know about true discipleship that we just kind of sweep under the rug or forget about? Maybe we apply it to the first two years after someone's saved and then their discipleship program, quote-unquote, is finished. And even what is our discipleship program? This has been something even this week that God's been starting to wreck me about. Often, I think, we tend to think of discipleship as giving someone a few lists. Here's a list of things to avoid doing. Here's a list of things to do. Get those both down. You've kind of got Christianity figured out. But in our heads, in our hearts, we know that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is so much more. So while that was maybe oversimplified, I think what we think of as discipleship should encompass all our lives. If you've been a Christian for 20 years, you should still be in a discipleship program, becoming a disciple of Christ. Discipleship is for all of us, our entire lives. We must continue to follow our Savior. So Christ retreats from the crowds and goes into the mountain with his disciples. We don't know his exact reason for going to the mountain. Was it to get away from the crowd? Was it to get a better vantage point where his teaching perhaps could have reached more people from a higher position? We don't know. 
But in the syntax of the verse there in 5.1, it appears they're connected. He sees the crowds. He goes up in the mountain. He sits down. He teaches. Think of other places in Scripture where Christ saw the crowds. He saw the crowds in other gospel accounts and had compassion on them. He saw their need. His, when he looked at people, wasn't a look of, is this person going to ask me for something? How can I get out of this conversation as quickly as possible? No, his was a look of love, of seeing their deepest need ultimately, and of acting in response to their needs. But here we see Christ going to the mountain. There's probably not much more than maybe some small hills on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And he begins to teach. Doriani said, The miracles made Jesus popular. But Jesus wanted disciples, not crowds. So he called a few men to himself. To do so, he separated from the crowds. For the crowds did not necessarily follow him for the best reasons. They were curious. They were eager for healing. But mere popularity and miracle working could not fulfill the purpose of his incarnation. Jesus didn't intend to heal all the sick in Israel. He sought to raise up true disciples. So his sermon was primarily to these disciples. Sure, other people listened in. By the end of his teaching, which may have gone on for a couple days even, by the end of his teaching, it says a great crowd was there. So there were other people listening in. But I think even by the words that he says, most of his message is directed to disciples. It's directed to those who are already following him to some degree. It's a focused training of sorts from the master to his pupils. The classroom included the 12 and probably some other disciples, not in that close-knit group. And it describes what it describes what the heart and the mind, what the outlook and the values of a disciple should be. And it says that Christ sits down. It's maybe cons- I think in our culture, it's kind of a strange position to be in when you're teaching. But it was associated in that day with a synagogue. They would sit down when the, the master was going to teach his students or teach his followers. He would do so from a seated position. So Christ starts his most famous message sitting down, telling his disciples about his kingdom. And as I said, many of his words are geared to describe the life of a disciple. We have three chapters showing how it looks practically in day-to-day experiences of life. And he really walks through some, some case studies almost of, in this situation, you probably have been doing this, you've been told this in the past from your teachers, but I tell you this, he gives the ultimate interpretation of Scripture. He challenges us against our tendency to compartmentalize our Christian lives to break up our Christian lives from our work life, from our Facebook life, from our... We we tend to live, I think, sometimes in categories. But Christ tells us we can't really be, quote-unquote, good Christians on Sunday and then something else on Friday and Saturday. Our lives reflect whether we are part of his kingdom here on earth. And like James says in his book, these aren't works that save us, but they validate true disciples living in the service of their king. When Jesus opens his mouth to speak, exactly what he wanted to say came out. This may seem obvious, but I know in my case, when I open my mouth to speak, sometimes the connection between my brain and my mouth gets a little jumbled. So I can't always say that, but Jesus could always, exactly what he wanted to say, is what came out. And what he wanted to say was always right. It was always appropriate. It was always the best thing to say. And I can't say that either, except by God's grace. Sometimes what I want to say is laced with self-promotion, with impure motives, with incomplete understanding. I'm human. But we really do have the exact thing that Christ wanted to say to his disciples communicated in these words And some of what he says is hard. This includes both words of grace, but also words that are hard for us to hear. You've probably heard some of these from the Sermon on the Mount. There are commands in this sermon to be perfect. 
commands to, if our eye offends us, to tear it out, to cut off our hand, to love and to do good to even those who hate us. You might say those aren't ways to get ahead in our culture. We, we, need, we need to watch out for ourselves. That's not the life in the kingdom that Christ describes. So these are hard things to say and to preach, but they come from the mouth of our king. So I pray that as we, as we study them, as we preach them, as we internalize them and discuss them with others, that God gives us grace to hear them. Well, let's finish our time today by declaring why I believe we need this message. I'm sure I could have thought of other things. You might have other things, but why I think we need the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And I know others who will be preaching share the desire for this series to be completely biblical, but also immensely practical, to to hit us where we're living today. And here are some examples of areas where Christ's message is going to necessarily intersect with our lives, where it's going to touch where we live in the coming months. So I want to urge that as a church, we're praying for these things. One area, one thing, one reason I believe we need this message is so that we know what Christ expects of his disciples and that we seek him where we fall short because we surely will. Here he lays out in clear and direct terms what life in the kingdom looks like, the repentance that is needed to pursue that life in him. And maybe some during this series are going to find that you've never really been a disciple of his. And you, through this series, through God's working by his spirit, will start following him in faith and repentance for the first time. And whoever that might be, if it's someone in here, if it's someone who begins visiting, if it's someone who's not here today, that would be awesome. There would be be nothing better than to have someone come to faith in Christ through the, through the preaching of God's word. And if that's you today, I don't want you to be embarrassed about that possibility because all of us would be overjoyed if someone were to truly become a disciple through his word. Another area I think we need this message is so that we're challenged and we're encouraged to fight sin patterns. You daily struggle, I daily struggle with my sin, with guilt over sin, We want to follow Jesus in in areas you may feel powerless to make any lasting change against your sin. So as we look at the topics Christ covers, things like lust, anger, retaliation, loving our enemies, self-righteous attitudes, how we treat money, dealing with anxiety, let's commit together to be honest with each other, ourselves, with God. Where we need to change, let's plead with God to change us by his grace. Because none of these are going to be things where we just try a little bit harder. It's going to be areas where God needs to do the work in us. And then through this series, I I think we need to see the reality of God's kingdom here and now. To grow in our anticipation of the kingdom also. So I pray we understand to a greater degree what the already not yet aspects of the kingdom are and how they connect to our daily lives of faith here on earth. This should lead us to pray with greater fervency, your kingdom come. This is God's message for us today. Jesus came to announce that his kingdom was here, that it brought with it great news, and that it was for disciples. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your grace, we need your strength as we seek to understand, seek to apply. I pray that we would be obedient to your word through this series. And I know for my part, there is anxiety there, knowing what we're going to be studying, knowing what we're going to be facing, putting our hearts up against the perfect standard, And I pray that in that we would realize, we would continually come back to the good news of the gospel. That if we struggle with anger and we lash out in anger, 
We need to repent. We need to see that as sin, but also recognize the grace that comes through the good news of Jesus Christ. That he died to pay for that sin if we are in him. That we no longer need to feel guilt about it. Pray that you would grow us in lives of repentance and that we would see your kingdom. That we'd see it here and now and also pray for it to come. God, I pray that the words that I've said, that you would use the ones that are needed in hearts. I can't do that work, God. You can. And we plead with you to do it now, to do it tomorrow, this week in community groups, that as we discuss your word, that you would break open areas of our lives that need to be changed by your grace. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Be with us now as we close in a time of musical worship. Amen.